Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Thursday, June 11th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the governor announces the launch of the Back to Business Grant Program website and a look at how the pandemic has changed the way we grieve. Then, in part two of our conversation on the history of racial injustice. Plus, in today's book club, Civil War soldiers included some women disguised as male soldiers, as we learn in Shelby Harrell's Behind the Rifle. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Small businesses in Mississippi that suffered losses from the coronavirus can begin applying today for a new grant. The Back to Business Mississippi Grant Program will be open to small businesses with 50 employees or less using funds from the CARES Act. Businesses can apply for up to $25,000 for expenses related to COVID-19. Governor Tate Reeves announced the Back to Business website during his daily press briefing yesterday, noting that the pandemic has been an economic emergency for the state. We need to always remember that this pandemic was not just a public health emergency. It plunged our country into the greatest job loss since the Great Depression. The economic damage and the human cost of it has been incalculable. We need to do everything in our power to take care of our neighbors in these challenging times. We need to do everything in our power to take care of our small business owners. Just to remind everyone about the Back to Business Grant Program. This is a program funded through the CARES Act where small businesses can be reimbursed for up to $25,000 of expenses related to COVID-19. It's only for small businesses with fewer than 50 employees No major corporations will be allowed to take part. Reeves says grants can cover COVID-19-related expenses, including items like masks, extra cleaning supplies, rent, payroll, or utilities. He says he believes the funds available should cover all that qualify. This is a grant program. This is not money that you have to pay back. 
We've got $40 million set aside for minority-owned businesses and women-owned businesses for the early days to make sure they get their fair share. My expectation is that there will be ample funds for everyone who applies to be successful if you meet the criteria. There should be plenty of money available for everybody to get what you qualify for. As I announced last week, same is true today. You can go to backtobusinessms.org and see all of the rules that surround this program. As with any program that deals with federal money, there are a lot of rules. In fact, there are probably too many rules. But if you want to maximize your money, I'd encourage you to go to the website and get familiar with those rules. Governor Reeves also says he wants to remind residents that the coronavirus is still a threat, but the state's economy is also in danger. He says changes have been made to the safe return order, easing restrictions on businesses like bars, restaurants, gyms, reception halls, and arenas. This comes as the state is experiencing an increase in hospitalizations and ICU bed utilization. State Health Officer Thomas Dobbs says community transmission appears to be the result of ill-advised gatherings. One of the scenarios that we're seeing over and over again, and, and this is going to, I'm, I'm really fearful, is going to play out pretty quickly in mortality and severe illness, is we're seeing young individuals, and we're tracking this back in our case investigation, who go out to a party, they're hanging out with friends, things that actually don't even meet the criteria for under the executive order. They're getting coronavirus. They're taking it back home, and either they live with their parents or they live with their grandparents, multi-generational housing, and transmitting it to the older folks, and it's leading to severe illness and even death at times. So this is something that we've been talking about, we've been predicting, and it's, and it's starting to occur. So, so please, I'm, I'm about to say, if you're, if you're over 65, avoid your grandkids, um, unless they know how to behave, because we're going to continue to see more and more problems unless we honor these social distancing issues. The COVID-19 death total is nearing 900 as the state enters its fourth month of the active cases and deaths. Throughout Mississippi, those who have lost loved ones, whether by COVID or otherwise, are having to adapt that the way they grieve. Steve Holland, owner of Holland Funeral Directors in Tupelo, tells our Ashley Norwood things have changed since the arrival of the coronavirus. In his almost 50 years in the funeral business, the former state representative Holland says he never imagined a time like this. We started out having graveside services only, and quite frankly, it didn't take us but about two to three weeks to realize that you almost cannot control a crowd in a graveyard. You don't own it, number one. And number two, people just drive up and show up. So now we're recommending to our families that they have them in our chapel. I happen to be blessed with a chapel that will seat 350 people, so it's larger than probably 85% of the churches in my county. And we live stream the service there so that we can practice social distancing. We can skip every other pew. And it's, it's absolutely worked beautifully at my place. It's hard to quarantine grief. And it's really been a sad time for families that lose loved ones. My biggest problem as the owner is I'm an up close and personal hug you, kiss you kind of guy. And it's driving me crazy that I can't touch anybody or get up close to anybody. Mm-hmm. And I'm one of the families you really just need to speak at a distance. And I would say we've done pretty well with that. 
certainly the death rate has not gone down. It's gone up with COVID. So we're still having funerals virtually every day. Was there ever a time you weren't offering these services or was there a time when you weren't offering um, the services as often and you may have saw some sort of decrease in, in your revenue at all? Well, you know, uh, there's a lot of people that's opted for cremation because they feel like it's uh, they feel like that's the best way to do it, so they can hold those remains. And I don't know at some point if this ever lives, I'm going to have about three memorial services today because so many families chose to say goodbye very privately and then say we're going to have a celebration of life service at a later date to be announced. Uh, I haven't seen any real decline in revenue. I'm personally making uh, concessions to families that don't have anything. I'm taking the things that we itemize off the list that they don't use. So that's been a little bit of a decrease in revenue, no doubt about it. But uh, I'm a good businessman. I don't worry about that. I worry about families and their comfort and their consolation. Uh, one thing you did mention earlier, you know, just not being able to rely on those traditions that we normally have, you know, in funerals where we hug one another and, um, you know, we come in close contact. Um, how has all this made you feel as a person that, you know, I mean, it's part of your lifestyle is, you know, it, this is your business. and This is how you've, you know, um, been able to assist others in times of need. It has changed the entire panorama of a funeral. And, and it's not for good, but I don't think we can do anything about it. I mean, it's just, it's made it a much colder affair because nobody can embrace, nobody can do what we Southerners love to do, which is get up close and personal with you and both you and, you know, that kind of thing. And that's not going on now. It's just not happening. Steve Holland is the owner of Holland Funeral Directors in Tupelo. Only 10 people can attend the memorial service honoring 62-year-old Army veteran Jerry Lee Kane Sr., who died after a week or so of fighting complications from the coronavirus. Kemar Kane is one of the elder Kane's two sons. We uh, ended up getting things done in a, in a timely fashion. Uh, we did not do a proper uh, burial due to the conditions of the pandemic. Um, when you say you didn't do a proper burial, what do you mean by that? So it wasn't an actual, like, at the, at the funeral home, there was a memorial service. It wasn't like an actual, like, a regular funeral. Uh, it was very limited. It could only be 10 people there. And so the kids, of course, and his wife, and, uh, that was the majority of the 10. Um, when it came to the actual burial the following day, uh, his wishes was to be buried in, in, in the Natchez National Cemetery, where all the veterans and those who served have been laid to rest. And so even with that, we couldn't necessarily stand around him like they do at other burial sites, we had to watch from the vehicle. And usually, when it comes to a veteran or someone who served in the military, uh, there's a whole ceremony. And uh, my, fa- my father did not have the opportunity to have that. Talk to me about just how difficult 
it it was or, or how it felt. What were your feelings behind it all, knowing that that we can't continue those traditions of gathering as a family and, you know, parts of his ceremony? You couldn't do it because of the guidelines. So. Yeah, I feel like he was cheated in a way, uh, not getting the proper ceremonies, uh, if you will. Uh, some family members didn't quite get a chance to say their last goodbye. So, you know, that uh, that was a, a pretty gut-wrenching feeling as well. I was emotional for a moment, I say, the moment. Didn't last very, very long because I understand that he doesn't have to go through any pain or anything anymore. So that feels good, if nothing else. Um, I can't be selfish, you know. Um, you return back to the body, returns to the dust and the spirit back to God. So that, that's how the game goes. Coming up, part two of our conversation on the history of racial injustice. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. On June 1st, President Donald Trump addressed the nation from the Rose Garden before proceeding through Lafayette. Lafayette Park to St. John's Episcopal Church. In the moments prior, protesters were forced to retreat the ground surrounding the park they had occupied while demonstrating most of the day. In the days that followed, two distinct narratives emerged about the events of that evening. The one seen through images and videos on newscasts and through social media platforms, and the one promoted by the White House. We return to our conversation with Jackson State University Professor of History Dr. Robbie Luckett to look closely at how this practice of manipulating the narrative traces back to the civil rights era. I think that that's a pretty common uh, thing as well throughout American history. The, the, the people who have the most power in those situations want to dictate and narrate a story that makes their decision-making seem justified. Just like the police in 1970 at Jackson State claimed there was a sniper in the women's dorm. Right. Um, something that's been completely debunked. And I, I think that most people with a, an unbiased or at least objective opinion of what happened on June 1st in D.C. can look at that and say these were not violent protesters and they were, in fact, exercising a constitutional right uh, to assemble and, and a right to, to free speech. And yet the people with the most power in America have consistently attempted to use their power to maintain it and to bolster it and to, and to create a new narrative. During the 70s, it was Richard Nixon and um, the Law and Order campaign, which was at the forefront of um, really criminalizing poor and urban and particularly minority communities, black and brown communities, um, in ways that was unjustified and that has fueled the carceral state in America today and the American prison industrial complex. The Freedom Riders 
traveled through southern states and and came upon violence everywhere they went, including people pulled off buses and arrested. And there had been a, a bus firebombed and the KKK trying to hold people on that bus so they would burn to death. But that was continuing. And, and this is when law enforcement itself supported those who were attacking the African-Americans. Sure. And um, frankly, there's reason to, to, to look at what's happening today and see continuity in that, right? And see that not enough has been done to change how we police in America and how we protect all people in America. And, and maybe we're at a moment in time where we're going to see some sensible reforms to policing, where we see um, some sensible reprioritizing of funding for social programs in communities that will um, ameliorate relationships with authorities and funding to train police in ways to interact with communities that help to build and sustain those communities rather than to criminalize them. Um, but again, I think what you saw in uh, the Freedom Rides in 1961 um, and with at times the, the complete lack of um, any kind of police um, presence or support for the fundamental human rights, civil rights, and, and, and dignity of the Freedom Riders is reflected in uh, a white police officer in Minneapolis with the knee on the neck of George Floyd and, and murdering of George Floyd. I think there's direct continuity in that story. And maybe we're at a point in time, finally, where we're going to see some change in that regard in this country. And again, I think it's also illustrated that this is an American problem, not just a problems to address, but this is certainly a story of the United States and not just a story of Mississippi. If we think about Freedom Summer in Mississippi and, and even the murders of um, uh, Michael Schorner, uh, Andy Goodman, and James Cheney, and yet the what was going to result in terms of more people engaging and pushing for fundamental uh, civil rights and voting rights in America. If we think about the Selma to Montgomery march before the Voting Rights Act, right? There, there are moments in time where people have been galvanized and come together and brought significant and tremendous change. Those were not uh, the end-all victories for the civil rights movement. We obviously still had so much further to go, and we still do to this day. And maybe we are at another one of those moments in time where we see a, a kind of a, a sea change in the landscape of America. And I, I, I'm hopeful for that, and I, I remain hopeful. Dr. Robert Lockett is uh, Jackson State University Associate Professor in the Department of History and the Director of the Margaret Walker Center. Thank you so much, Dr. Lockett. Thanks, Karen. Coming up in today's book club, Civil War soldiers included some women disguised as male soldiers, as we learn in Shelby Harrell's Behind the Rifle. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, you can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org.
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. More than two and a half million men fought in the Civil War, and so did some women disguised as male soldiers. Why were they there and how did they pull it off? Shelby Harrell is the author of Behind the Rifle, Women Soldiers in Civil War, Mississippi. My first question to her, how many women soldiers were there? We don't know, and we never will, because they had to fight disguised as men. Women weren't allowed to serve in the military 150 years ago. It was even illegal and socially unacceptable just for them to wear pants. So they had to be sneaky about it in order to enlist and serve. We know about the ones who were caught or their story came to light after the war. So estimates range from the hundreds to the thousands. There weren't that many of them, especially when you consider the fact that over two million men fought in the Civil War. Their number was insignificant. They did not affect the outcome of any battles, but they're still significant because they were there. They weren't supposed to be. So they gave their lives for the same causes the men did. Do you have any information why they enlisted, why they put themselves in that kind of danger of being discovered, for one, and, of course, putting their lives on the line? There were multiple reasons, and a major reason that they gave was to avoid being separated from loved ones who had gone off to war. In some cases, a husband or a brother was all the family these women had, and so they just did not want to be left home alone, didn't want to be by themselves. And so they donned men clothing and followed these male loved ones to war was one of the major reasons. An economic reason was another Women did not have many job opportunities, at least decent jobs, for decent pay. And so in order to be financially independent, they had to disguise themselves as men to take advantage of jobs denied them because of their gender. And so in some cases, as soon as they enlisted, they were making three and four times the money that they were in their traditional feminine roles. So that was another reason. Just like the men, these women were adventurous. They were patriotic. In some cases, the reasons that they enlisted were no different than their male counterparts. What was the penalty if they were caught? In most cases, they were dismissed and discharged right there on the spot. Some of them were actually sent to prison, still wearing their uniforms, because Nobody knew how to deal with them. There was nothing in the military regulations directing the military officials on how to deal with a woman who was caught in a regiment. So they assumed they were spies or prostitutes or they were crazy or something like that. They just couldn't understand that a woman would leave her domestic sphere in the Victorian time and cross over into a world that was completely closed to them. In your research, did you find... Any cases where fellow soldiers realized that who they were serving next to was a woman, not a man, but didn't say anything? Yes. Matter of fact, I talk about one, I believe he's in the 4th Michigan, and wrote a letter home about multiple women that he had been serving with and actually praised them for their skills that they had, you know, as soldiers. He said they were competent soldiers. In some cases, they didn't really say anything, but the officers 
were ones that if you're a woman soldier, you wanted to avoid an officer because it was an embarrassment to the officers that they were caught, you know, sneaking into their regiment. And then you also saw some cases where a soldier was actually court-martialed. So officers especially did not want to be associated with a woman that was caught in their regiment. Does your book cover women serving in the Confederate Army and the Union Army? Yes, in both cases. I have a chapter on women soldiers from Mississippi, and then I have sprinkled throughout women from various other states who came to Mississippi to serve in the battles fought in this state. And then, of course, I have some introductory chapters where I talk about women who were killed or wounded in other battles and then were serving as prisoners of war in prison camps like Andersonville. I do branch out and discuss other topics. That was my next question about Andersonville or other prison camps. Were they held alongside of the men? Unfortunately, we don't know a whole lot about them. We're lucky just to have a brief mention in a diary or letter example that I I talk about in my book is Florina Budwin, which was more than likely not her, her correct name because these women would give false information when they were discovered just because of the shame and ostracism involved. Lots of conflicting information, but she was brought to Andersonville and then transferred to Florence, where ultimately she was discovered in Florence after falling ill and died there and was buried there in Florence National Cemetery. And and there are accounts of male soldiers saying that they witnessed her at Andersonville. We don't know a lot of information beyond that. The name of the book is Behind the Rifle, Women Soldiers in Civil War, Mississippi. We've been speaking with its author, Shelby Harrell. Thank you so much, Shelby. Thank you for having me. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.